If you could turn with me into your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. I know, again, you were all so eager to hear Ecclesiastes, but I I don't think I could preach Ecclesiastes the way Pastor Drew does. Uh, I never would have imagined I would have take so much joy in listening to Ecclesiastes. It started out so depressing, but the way he works in just Christ into everything it has such a, been such a blessing. So instead of that, I decided uh, to jump to First John. Uh, I've been having to, as many of you know, I'm in seminary and I'm in Greek right now, and my final is translating First John from the Greek into English. So I've been reading it every day, um, and I figured I could put that to good use today. Or at least I'll try. So let us give heed now to the reading of God's word, starting in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, in your word there is life, for they testify to your son Jesus Christ. We ask that your spirit will aid me in proclaiming your word and aid us in hearing your word, that we may be richly blessed by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this introduction that we just read to the letter, uh, this John's introduction, it, it, it is absolutely remarkable. It, it is, it's simple and yet profound. And, and for these reasons, uh, despite not having any formal introduction, it makes for the perfect opening to John's letter. Because John's letter, it, it's short. It's easy to read. You can easily sit down and, and read it in one go and, and walk away understanding it. John writes with e- exceptional clarity. He repeats important ideas frequently, and he uses vivid imagery and, and, and picture examples so that we can understand his points. And in these ways, it It's almost like reading a children's book, like a classic children's book, right? Repetition, clarity, wonderful pictures that we can imagine and understand. And John even refers to his readers as children. But that in no way detracts from the profundity and complexity of John's letter. And to understand what I mean, you don't have to look any further than the first five verses of this letter. New Testament scholar C.H. Dodd called these opening verses an exceedingly complex grammatical tangle. And both John Calvin and Martin Luther have commented that these verses almost seem like 
abrupt stammering. And so when men far smarter than ourselves come to this verse and they walk away uh, dumbfounded, we best slow down and see what they're looking at. Because it's almost like John is pushing the boundaries uh, of the conventional use of language because the reality he is describing is larger than life. John's message, it's picturesque and it's plain. It's easy enough for a child to understand, but it is profound and it is enough to baffle the greatest of minds. So this morning, my prayer is that we will understand John's simple, plain message and understand it better by looking at that larger-than-life reality that he is describing. And to do this, we really need to take a look at that grammatical tangle. We need to know what is the which, who is the we, and who is the you. And if that sounds like a Dr. Seuss thing, you're catching on to the complexity of John. It's, it's confusing. It really is. Uh, but don't worry, John does not leave us in the dark. So we will, we will examine the question, what is the that which was from the beginning? Who is the we that did all these things and is proclaiming a message? And who is the you who is receiving the proclamation? So first, what is which? The first peculiarity we need to examine is found right in the first verse. And again, instead of starting with a traditional greetings, grace and peace to you, uh, John dives, just dives right into the deep end. He says, that which was from the beginning. And this opening is interesting uh, grammatically because it seems that John is referring to a, a thing and not a person. And that might come as a surprise, especially if you've grown up in the church and you've read this before, uh, because you rightly know he's referring to Christ, right? His message is plain. A child could read it in its common sense understanding, and it's referring to Jesus. But he's doing something really interesting here. He doesn't open with he who was from the beginning, but the more impersonal that. And it's not a mistake the ESV, the NASB, the KJV, the NIV, they all stay true to John's use of an impersonal pronoun. And the question we need to ask is why? Why does John call Jesus a that? Why does John seemingly refer to Jesus as a thing? And to answer this question, bear with me, we need, let's pretend as if we didn't know who John was referring to. Let's pretend that we didn't know John was referring to Jesus and just try to figure out what John's doing with this word. But then, by doing so, we'll understand the illustrative beauty of what John's doing. So, first, what, what is the that? What is the that which? Some try to argue that John is referring to the message in, found in verse 5. He's, if that's the case, an amplified version of verse 4 would read, the message which was from the beginning. That's not quite right. It doesn't fit perfectly. Uh, John does say that he heard the message, right? Um, but he also says that that which was from the beginning is something he's touched, something that he has seen. And you can't really touch and see a message. So it doesn't fit quite right. Uh, some try to argue then that John is referring to the life in verse 2. 
In that case, verse 1 would roughly mean the life which was from the beginning. But again, it's not quite right. John does say in verse 2 that he has seen the life, but how can you handle something so conceptual as life? How can you hear something so abstract as life itself? Now, perhaps you think I'm missing the obvious. Nathan, you may be saying, you don't need to look any further than verse 1. Clearly, that which was from the beginning must be referring to the word of life. John even says, concerning the word of life. But once again, that's not quite right. Now, in the Greek, you can actually tell what words are referring to other words based on how they're spelt. I'm way oversimplifying that, but it's enough for the point. Because we can see how this word, the that which is spelt, we can know for certain it's not talking about the word of life. In fact, based on its spelling, we know that the witch can't refer to the life or the message. So what do we do? <laughs> Are we without hope of ever understanding what John means? Of course not. I've already told you, and many of you already know, John is referring to Jesus. But how? How is this so, and why is John being so confusing with his language? And here's where it gets, it gets really exciting. I promise I'm not just dragging you along with a grammar lesson. This is the exciting part. Remember, John needs to push the boundaries of the use of conventional language, right? Uh, you, it's, the imagination needs to be pushed here because the reality he is describing is larger than life. John's not using the impersonal that which because he doesn't think Jesus is a person. He uses the impersonal that which because Jesus is much greater than just a mere person. Jesus is the message. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the word, right? Consider with me, right? If a message were written down on a letter, you could hold that letter. You could see the message. Jesus is the message that John saw and touched and heard and now proclaims. Paul writes in Colossians 1.28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Jesus is also the one who's delivered God's final message of salvation. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. That's larger than life. Consider how because we live, because we have life, we can see, we can hear, we can touch. Now, what if that source of all life became something tangible, something you could see, hear, and touch? That is what Jesus himself claims to be in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when we hear the word of life, how can we not help but think about John's wonderful, magnificent opening to his gospel. Reading out of chapter 1 of John, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And he goes on to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's larger than life. Dear saints, uh, John's words in his opening, they're grammatically strange so that we can slow down and think about what he is saying. John's message is plain. It is clear. Jesus was a real person, someone you could see, hear, and touch. John himself had such wonderful fellowship with his Savior that in John 13, it says he could lay his head upon his Savior's chest. And John needed to. It was important that he emphasized the personhood of Jesus because there were already at this time people who do not who denied that Jesus came in the flesh. We read that in 1 John 4 verse 3. But John's words in his introduction are so strangely constructed that it leaves no doubt that Jesus is more than just a mere person. Jesus is the eternal one who has existed from the beginning, from before all time. Jesus is the life made manifest. Jesus is the proclamation of eternal life, which was with the Father from the beginning. And Jesus is the message of light. And in him is no darkness at all. And so, John's introduction beautifully hedges us in between this fence of two places where we have this beautiful vista, where we can see that Jesus is both God and man. Jesus existed Outside, Jesus exists outside of time, but he also existed within history. And though the mystery of Christ can boggle the mind, John wants you to know that this Jesus was not a mere illusion, but he was a personal person you could touch, you could see. This is the Jesus who used his hands to wash John's feet. This is the Jesus who let nails be driven through those hands and then later on opened his hands so you could see the holes all these memories reverberating in John's mind. And he sublimely portrays this larger-than-life reality of the life of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, using language profound enough to baffle scholars, yet simple enough for a child to understand. I I get excited about that. I don't know about you, but that gets me going. It's just beautiful. The next question we want to answer, though, is who is we, right? Now, John here considers himself to be a part of a group of people who have heard, seen, uh, and touched Jesus. And this group is the one who is proclaiming the message of eternal life in Christ. So who is this group? And once again, if you've grown up in the church or if you just follow the flow of common sense thought, you would know that he's referring to the apostles, to the disciples of Christ, uh, the ones whom Christ sent out to declare the message of the kingdom. We read of Jesus creating this group in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, where it says, he, Jesus, appointed the 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So it's clear, it's, it's the apostles. But once again, that. It's a little interesting, a little, a little interesting for more than a couple reasons, but consider with me in verse 4, John says, we are writing these things to you. John is referring to this group as if they were present and participating in writing the letter, and that's, that's odd. It's odd for two reasons. First, uh, by the time John is writing this letter, we don't know exactly when, but it's late first century, 
right? 90 AD or something. And by this point in history, most of the apostles are dead. John is very likely the last living apostle by the time he penned this letter. Second, John later on in the letter explicitly clarifies that he is the only author of this letter. He says numerous times in chapter 2, I am writing, I write to you. In 1 John 5.13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So it's odd. Who is this we that, how can John speak like this? And this oddity is compounded when we look at John's two purpose statements. Right? In 1 John 1.3, he says, they are proclaiming the message of Christ so that you too may have fellowship with us. And again, in 1 John 4, he says that they are writing this letter so that our joy may be complete. How can John refer to multiple authors when he's the only one? How can dead people have fellowship with the living? And how can dead people have their joy be complete? Well, the first part of the answer is just to remember that this group is the apostles. The resurrected Christ specifically and specially commissioned these men to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God, to be heralds of the gospel. So this group is the one that saw, heard, and touched Christ. So in one sense, when John says we, he is referring to past events. This is the group that saw, heard, and touched Christ. And by remembering that these are the apostles, we can also kind of explain how John is saying, we are writing these things. It's similar to the use of what's called the royal we. If a king issues a command or a verdict, he says, we. He calls himself we. And it's understood there's only one king, but it's the king speaking with the power invested in him. And thus he refers to himself in the plural, we. Likewise, John is speaking with a, what we could call an apostolic we. He is delivering the apostolic message with the apostolic authority invested in him by Christ himself. Thus, though the apostles may have died and they were not present, John could refer to himself in the we in this sense. But that still doesn't fully explain how John can desire his readers to join in the fellowship of the apostles and complete their joy. To understand this, we need not look any further than at the message the apostles are declaring, the reality of eternal life in Christ. Once again, John is describing a reality that is greater than we can fathom. Though John's earthly fellowship with the apostles has ended, his fellowship lives on with his friends because Christ is alive. John says in verse 3, that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, John was no longer enjoying earthly fellowship with his beloved Savior. Jesus had ascended. John could no longer lay his head upon the chest of Christ. But John says he is in fellowship with Jesus. His fellowship certainly has changed, but it is ongoing. Jesus has ascended into heaven, but he is not dead. On the contrary, Jesus, the word of life, is very much alive and fellowshipping with his people. And because Christ is alive, then John's friends, 
the apostles are alive. And John's invitation to have fellowship with them is an invitation to have fellowship with Jesus Christ for all eternity. And that is a glorious consultation, uh, consolation. That is a glorious comfort. Because Jesus lives, believers in Christ live too. We have fellowship with Christ now, and we will have fellowship with him forever. And those who have gone on before us, those whom we wish we could see one more time, hold one more time, hear their voice one more time, they are not gone from us, not forever. If they are in Christ, they are already enjoying, beholding Jesus face to face, and we shall join them hand in hand in perfect joy, in perfect fellowship with the Father and with Jesus for all eternity. And that is wonderful, glorious good news of eternal life and fellowship with Christ. But notice, it comes through fellowship with the apostles. Fellowship with Christ comes through fellowship with the apostles. If that sounds strange, let me explain. Jesus himself was praying in John 17 to the Father, and Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, by which he means the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, Jesus purposed that the world would come to believe in him through the ministry of the apostles, through the message declared by the apostles. If you desire to be one with Christ, you must be one with the ones Christ sent. If you wish to hold hands with Christ, you must join hands with those who walked hand in hand with Christ himself. Fellowship with the apostles, then, it's not simply about having your name on church membership roll. It's not about fellowship meals. It's not about service projects. Those are all good things. Those are wonderful things. But fellowship with the apostles is so much more. To put maybe some more concrete imagery on that one, Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2 when he says that being a citizen with the saints, and members of the household of God, he says that means being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Apostolic fellowship then is about believing in their God-given message. It's about aligning ourselves with their testimony and submitting to the commandments they deliver as God's authorized witnesses. And John makes clear in his letter what that commandment is. In 1 John chapter 3, he says, This is the commandment. Believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. And so, that leads us to look at our last question. Who is the you to whom John is writing? Well, John originally wrote this letter to his beloved churches uh, throughout the Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, some scholars say probably Ephesus was the first place I received it. John, uh, if he was the only alive apostle, had pastoral love and care for these churches. But through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John also writes to you and to you, and to you, to you, to you, to me, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John's words are written for us today, too. 
John's proclamation of eternal life and fellowship with Christ is written for you, for you to hear and to read, and so that through it, you may have fellowship with them and with God. And that's the, that's, that's the love of John coming through, that the personal care that John has for his readers, it, it's warm and inviting, which kind of makes it sound a little off-putting in verse 4 when he says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Our joy? Uh, that phrase might even sound a little selfish. Our joy? What about my joy? Uh, as some... Uh, some old manuscripts, not the oldest manuscripts. The oldest manuscripts we have of 1 John all say our joy, but clearly some of the people writing down the translation, they thought, it should probably be your. Maybe this is a mistake, but no. John means our joy, but he's not being selfish. When he says our joy, it's an expression of John's love for his readers, for us. Uh, As an example, we all take great joy and watching the ones we love do well, watching them succeed. Uh, I have a younger brother. He is, I have two brothers and an older sister, all right? But my youngest brother, he is a a senior at Cedarville University. He's an engineering major, and he just had this awesome opportunity to compete at a student NASA rocket launch. He's literally doing rocket science. He's going up against other schools like Purdue and Harvard, and I, all my siblings are geniuses. I'm not ashamed to say they're all far smarter than I am. My, my brother will, will sometimes send the mathematical equations he's working on, and my brothers and my sisters are all like, yeah, I get it. And meanwhile, I'm reading over his instructions on how to fold the parachute for the rocket, and I don't understand it. I, I, I guess I can't even fold the parachute, and here he is doing, I don't even know what kind of math that's called. It's all letters, so I don't... But that's not the point. The point is... I loved watching him succeed, doing what God has called him to do, this this vocation of being an engineer. It it brought me such great joy. And that's not selfish joy, right? Parents and grandparents take great joy in watching their kids and grandkids grow up and do well. And that's the kind of joy John is talking about. The apostles are like parents who want to have great joy in watching their little children grow up in the Lord. John wants to have the joy of watching his children join in their fellowship, join in their fellowship with Christ. That is John's joy. And he knows it will be complete one day when hand in hand with his Savior, he's also hand in hand with the full number of those who believe. And he also takes great joy in being faithful to what God has called him to do. He takes great joy in writing this letter because he's been called by Christ to proclaim this message, which he has seen and heard and touched. So then, his joy is not selfish. His highest joy is found in loving and serving his Savior, and in loving and serving his brothers and sisters, his children. And this joy is available to everyone who believes, including us who hear. So yes, this letter is written for you, dear Christian. But this letter is also addressed to all who have not yet believed in Christ. John writes, so that you may have fellowship with him, that his joy may be complete. It is still an open possibility for those who have not believed in Christ. 
And within the visible church during that time, uh, the apostles' message was not believed by everyone. Within the church, there were people teaching that they were without sin. There were people denying that the Son of God came in the flesh. And there were people who just up and left. They left the church. And John knows this. He knows there are people even within the church who do not believe. Now, Jesus is a sure Savior. He will never lose a single soul whom he has saved. But if you deny the message of the apostles, you deny the Savior that sent them. So I ask to everyone who is listening, have you believed? Do you do not put your trust in church attendance or in good works? That is not the fellowship that John is looking for. Do you trust that Jesus is the eternal one, the one from before the beginning of time? Do you believe that Jesus is the life made manifest? Have you listened to Jesus, the proclamation of eternal life, which was with the Father from the beginning? And has the light of Jesus shined into your heart to overcome the darkness of sin and death? If you have, you will enjoy fellowship with God forever. But if you have not, then you can have no consolation in this life. And to anyone who is listening and has never joined a church, Perhaps you feel you're too dirty to join a church or too unclean to be churchy. John writes to you too. No sin is too great for Jesus to forgive. No one too dirty for him to cleanse. John writes in chapter two that Jesus is the means of forgiveness for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of sin for all who would believe in him not just for those who appear outwardly good, not just those who can get dressed up on a Sunday morning. You don't need to do anything or bring anything to Jesus first. You only need to repent, believe, and trust in the life made manifest, Jesus Christ. And that indeed is larger than life. Good news. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to take on flesh, for enduring the cross so that we may have forgiveness for our sins through him. Help us to live in the light of Christ and for his name, amen.